Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we're reading verse 1 through to verse 7. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares, and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make your vow to God, do not delay to fulfil it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfil your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfil it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Morning all. It's funny you talk about singing Ecclesiastes. I suppose the Smiths did that, if you know the Smiths. And uh, except they never mention God once and leave him out, which is kind of not the point of Ecclesiastes. Okay. Um, Part 11 of our series on Solomon, Meaningful Worship. Solomon, as we've seen over this time, has been experimenting with life in a world without God. And after trying everything unbelievers live for, he thinks it's meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. It's always running after something that you'll never actually catch. His conclusion is that the very thing that brings ultimate meaning and makes true sense of this world is the very person people seek to live without. The creator of all things. And if we live like God doesn't exist, you'll never ultimately find deep satisfaction, everlasting purpose, true identity, rock-solid security, and unbreakable belonging. You just won't. With God, it makes all sense. With God, it's... (laughs) Without God, it's ultimately meaningless. Why? Because in 3 verse 11, your creator has set eternity in the hearts of everyone. That means you can't fill the eternal void within with that which is time-bound, temporary and fading. You can't do that. It's never going to work. Only God alone can fill the very core of you. And that's exactly what he wants to do. Because only then do you begin to realise just who he is, who you are in relationship to him, which is all that matters, where you've come from, why you're here and where you're going. All the things that everybody seeks all the wrong places to find out. 
Only then do you truly enjoy all the good things that God has given you to enjoy. And only then do you enter into your reason for being, to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And when you find God, now Solomon moves on to tell us how to make the most of God, because he is to be enjoyed. So we move to meaningful worship. And our, the first, uh, Ecclesiastes 5.1 says this, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Well, the house of God here is the temple that Solomon's just built. I mean, it's absolutely cracking, isn't it? But today, it's not about a building. In fact, a building is only a house of God when God's people gather together in it and are corporately filled with the Holy Spirit. And actually, New Testament tells us that now we are the house of God. We are his temple. It's not a building anymore where God's presence symbolically dwells when we're not there, but only when we're there. 1 Peter 2 verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, that's Jesus, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, Solomon's temple is long gone. It's in the dust. Today, this refers to any meeting where we gather to worship the Lord. It kind of becomes the house of God when we're there. So how to make the most of the Lord and enjoy him in the context of corporate worship, meeting together, is really what this is about. And the first thing to do is to consider who you're going to encounter. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. The picture is, it's almost as you're walking towards the meeting. Be mindful. Put your head into gear. Because what you're walking towards is not just any old counter, it is a it encounter, it is a powerful corporate encounter with Almighty God. It isn't business as usual. Before we arrive at a meeting together, prepare our hearts and minds for worship of this great God. We've just been singing about how great he is. You see, rushing out of bed and waiting to the last minute and dashing out the door isn't really a good thing to do when you're coming to this place. Now, with young kids, it's very hard. We've been through that. You may still be going through it, but you will certainly remember. You don't always have a chance to reflect, get your head into gear or whatever. Fair enough. But as we get out of the car, perhaps, and we're just walking towards the meeting, then perhaps seek to refocus, at least in our minds. There was an old tradition, wasn't there? And uh, some people still do it. And it's a good tradition. I mean, sometimes these things end up being a bit meaningless because they're always done. But if you enter into what the reason for it was, there used to be an old tradition where as you went into church, upon entering, you would sit down and the first thing you would do is still yourself. Close your eyes, pray, settle your hearts before the Lord. You can do that in various different ways. But that is a bit like, you know, you watch Wimbledon, you've got the pro tennis player, and he's just lost a vital point, and he's distracted by what's just happened because he's lost a vital point. And they pause, 
and they talk to themselves, and then they refocus and channel their focus on the task at hand again. Then they're ready to go again. Then they're ready to give it their best attention. Forgetting what's gone on and focusing on what's happening right in front of them now. Now, life's such a rush, isn't it? Many, many distractions. And they're often heightened on a Sunday morning. An old friend of mine used to say, devil works twice as hard on a Sunday. And the last thing the devil wants is for you to be up for it on a Sunday. The last thing your old nature wants is to praise and focus upon God. Many things do militate against it. Sometimes the devil tempts us to retaliate to something said at home or on the way, and a row erupts. I've been had a few times on the way to church in that regard. Sharp words can be exchanged, and then you've got to go and preach, and Julie's got to go and hear me preach. That's the worst thing. And the devil's coming at me, and he's saying, you hypocrites. There you go, talking about God, loving others. You've just had a row. You can't stand up there and preach after that. Why don't you just go home? Let John do two sermons. <laughs> so there I am, repenting all the way to church, texting Julie for forgiveness, hoping she'll see it before I preach. But you see, that's just another one of the things that come in to stop us. Because go I must and preach I must. Why? Because God's word is true and God will speak in spite of me. If you have a row before coming to church, confess and be even more determined to go and meet with God. Turn it on its head. The devil's trying to stop you. Yes, it might be your fault. Never mind. The devil's trying to stop you meeting with the Lord. Who is the accuser of the brethren? It's not God, is it? We stand in grace. We stand in Jesus. It's about God, not you or me, and what we do or don't do. Our good brother Tony always used to make me laugh, and still does, but often he would have people say, I'm not going to church. Church is full of hypocrites. And he'd say, there's always room for one more. <laughs> it's so true, isn't it? We're... We're fallen. We're sinners. We're forgiven sinners, but we're sinners. Don't expect perfection from the house of God. Although, obviously, the witness is too at stake. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. The other thing is in guarding our steps. Sometimes we allow our feelings to dictate. And in the end, because of the way we feel, we don't come. I'm tired, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, I'm irritable, I'm in a bad place, I'm sad. Turn that one on its head. That is when we should raise our game and be determined to get in a good place and encounter God with his people. It's like the athlete, athlete as Paul often says, they train to get the prize and to train means extreme discipline. So we must be spiritually disciplined. If you can, Choosing to be in the corporate presence of God is always the best choice. Better to put yourself in the way of blessing and hear from God than be anywhere else. And especially when you don't feel like it. It is essential to be still and know that I am God. 
And when we've guarded our steps, that will lead us to expectancy of the person we're to meet. Because God stands every Sunday, I'm a firm believer in this, he God, he God, God stands ready to move, to transform, and to bring you out of yourself, revive you, excite you, enthuse you, charge you up, so you go out the door different from when you came in. Is his intention every week to meet with you. So that you'll be equipped to face whatever troubled you when you entered. Stronger in Christ, refocused on him. What's not to like? And you know, some people say to me, yeah, 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 you say that. So I forced myself to come regardless of how I felt against my better judgment and nothing happened. Well, it's still better because you put yourself in the way of blessing. To look deep in the face of Jesus does in itself transform you from glory to glory. So guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And the second way to make the most of God in meaningful worship is this. Listen carefully when you're here to the voice of God. Verse 1, go near to listen. You've prepared yourself, you've stilled your soul, you've repented if necessary. Now you draw near and you're all ears to see what God has to say to you this morning. Is that your approach this morning? Is that how you've come? Or if that isn't how you've come, are you now coming with that focus? You see, when there's other voices all around you, you can't hear, can you? So you draw closer to the person that you want to hear. So their voice is heard above all others and drowns out all others as a result. Why? Because you're more interested in what they have to say than all the other things around you. That is the way we hear from God. We drown everything else out. I wonder if you've ever been in a room with others around you, uh, in, in this situation or whatever, But you felt like you were the only one. Why? Because God was speaking personally and directly to you. It's quite amazing, isn't it? But you cannot do that if you're distracted. We have a personal and corporate encounter with God right here, right now. We so underestimate it so often. And sometimes as well, we're so fixed on how you think others will react to the word that you lose any sense of God speaking to you. Sometimes happens when you bring somebody who doesn't know the Lord. And you're so fixed on what you think they think of what's being said that the word completely passes you by. In other words, avoid listening for or on behalf of others. Listen to what God is saying to you. He's perfectly capable of speaking to them without you worrying about what they're thinking. Don't assume others may think this or that. Focus on what God wants you to think about and me. That is what it is to go near and to listen. Drown out anything, anyone else, only God and his word to you. Are you doing that right now? Or are you thinking, I wonder what such and such thinks? Or leave that to the Lord. God is always speaking in and out of church. But are you always listening? 
And the other thing is that makes the most of our worship is that listening, we have to remember that listening involves sacrifice and personal cost. It's just not, not just listening either, it's the whole experience. Verse 1, rather than, so it says, uh, God just steps we go to the house of God, go near to listen, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who don't know they do wrong. And what, what's that? What the Lord's really saying is, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Because verse 2, it says, do not be quick with your mouth, do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God's in heaven, you're on the earth, so let your words be few. What's this sacrifice of fools? Well, there's kind of two parts. And the first one is, they're quick to talk and they're slow to listen. The opposite. Now, a fool in this context is not one who can't learn, but refuses to learn. They do not know they do wrong because they're adamant that what they're doing is right. This fool loves the sound of his own voice more than the voice of God. Now, someone reminded me the other day, quite rightly, probably a gentle rebuke, maybe a hard one. Gives God, God gives two ears and one mouth for a reason. <laughs> Listen twice as much as you speak. Avoid the sacrifice of fools. Verse 2. God is his heaven, you are the, on the earth, so let your words be few. Now, any sacrifice costs, including a foolish sacrifice. Well, why does it cost a fool to do a foolish sacrifice? Because he can't keep quiet and hear from God. He doesn't acknowledge just who's speaking. He forgets God is on the seat of supreme power over all things, the one who gives the ability to talk and listen in the first place, and the very one who could shut him up in an instant. Now sometimes when I've been preaching over these years, you get that sense that God left the building after the first 20 minutes and I'm still speaking. And it's time, or was time, for me to sit down and shut up. For God's sake, for yours, for mine, for everybody's sake. I think preachers can overkill and overdo the good they've done by banging on when God left the building. Now that's not, e any, that's not exact science, it's very hard sometimes to gauge that. But I have had that experience. One time years ago at Park, I'd been going 20 minutes, I had 10 minutes left of uh, what I'd prepared. And I just stopped and said, Amen, because I did feel that tangibly. And somebody raced up to me afterwards. I thought, they're going to tell me off for 20 minutes. said, that was exactly the right choice. Well done. I didn't know how to take that, but... <laughs> but you see, the fool here has no awe in his heart as he addresses the king of kings. Because he thinks it's all about him, what he thinks, what he believes, what he says, what he promises. If he has to sit and listen, he will fidget. He'll say something distracting. He'll think something distracting. Whatever he'll do or she, he will make it all about him and his response, and he can't sit still for five minutes. If he does stay quiet, he's always thinking of his response rather than listening to what's being said, including and especially when it comes to God's word.
In any event, he doesn't draw near and listen to God. He does the opposite. He's constantly listening to himself. We've all been there. We've all done that. So verse 3 seems a bit random. Because what have dreams got to do with this point? Verse 3, as a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. It seems to be this. Dreams are jumbled up thoughts of what's already happened, aren't they? Disjointed often, but they're often about what you care about, what you're worried about. Basically, when you're asleep, anything enters your head and you focus on it. That's what a dream is. It's random, it's disconnected, it's meaningless, it's often foolish. And so I think the writer here is saying, like the head of a fool, he's not dreaming, he's not asleep, but he might as well be, because whatever he thinks or says, as many things come one after the another in a dream, he opens his mouth rashly without thinking properly. Like a dream, he gets taken up by what comes into his head and he reacts on the spur. But this moves into part two of that sacrifice of fools. Avoid making rash promises to God in the presence of God. And that would also include making rash promises to God about promises to others or what you're going to do for others. Verse four, when you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools, Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow, vow and not fulfill it. You see, the fool here makes promises he can't keep. He reacts too quickly to what he hears and what he thinks, and that is foolish. Especially when you make promises to God in the heat of the moment that you don't and can't fulfill when the moment's gone. Why does that interfere with the worship of God and the meaningfulness of it? Because promises made to God are promises to the promise keeper, uh, who always keeps his promises. And because he always keeps his promises, he expects you and I to do the same. He'll hold you to that standard. Especially when you're under no obligation whatsoever to make that promise. It's not something he asked you to do. How many times in the passion of praise, or you're moved by the word, and we make promises to God, probably in our heads, but then we go and break them? That's what makes the worship of God meaning less. Let me give you an example. Lord, I'll never do that again. Would it not be better to say, Lord, forgive me? Help me to turn away from that thing, that person, that influence. Give me strength to follow you better. Help me overcome it by your grace. Isn't that better? Lord, I've learned my lesson. Take the trial away. (laughs) I've said that many times. How do I know I've learned my lesson? Lord, I don't understand while I'm still in this difficulty and in this situation. Heaven seems silent. But I think I've learned all you're trying to teach me. But is there more, Lord? Because I hate what's going on, but I am willing to learn more if that's what it takes. Isn't that better? 
Lord, from now on, I'll make you my all. The hymn writer desires a closer walk with God and he puts it very good. He makes no promises. He says, the dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. See the difference? Isn't that so much better? You see, making promises you can't keep makes it all about you and what you can do. Isn't it better to make it all about God and trust in what he can do? Lord, help me is much better than Lord, I promise. <laughs> and wouldn't we rather rely on the promise keeper than the promise breaker? Of course. Not that we should never ever make promises to God. Marriage is one such promise, isn't it? We, we do make promises to God sometimes. But here we go again. If you do promise, make every possible effort, as far as it depends on you, to keep it. Verse 4, when you make a vow, don't delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fulfilling Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. And then here's another one. In, in order to make the most of God and make your, your worship and your embracing of him and him to you as meaningful as possible. To enjoy God. These things get in the way. If a promise is broken, don't make excuses. Verse 6. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And don't protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Now the temple messenger could be translated as the face of God. That could be God himself. It might be an angel who is appointed to do God's justice. Or it might be a priest. Nobody really knows. It doesn't really matter. Don't make excuses. And then say I didn't mean it. I wasn't thinking. I didn't think it through. That's the sacrifice of a fool. You see, about making promises you can't keep, Jesus says, well, avoid that. Don't make it in the first place. Matthew 5, 37. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no, anything beyond this, isn't just bad, comes from the evil one. It's serious. Well, I have broken a promise, so what do I do? Because we all have in our lives. We make them to all sorts of people, and then we break them. And we do it in the presence of the Lord, and we make promises to God, and we break them. What do we do? We confess to the Lord and others if it involves them. And we then know and rely on the fact that his forgiveness is sure. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Clean the slate. And if it's to somebody else and the Lord hears and he knows, he's omnipresent, acknowledge it to that person and try to make it good and seek to learn not to make any more promises you can't keep. Then we move on in verse 6. Broken promises 
bring broken consequences. Verse 6, why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Okay, so when you break a promise made to God or in his presence to others, ask for forgiveness, we said you forgiveness 100%. But the importance of the promise is often related to the more severe consequences. Verse 6, destroy the work of your hands. Now, what does that mean? Well, I went through all sorts of things in my head, but I think if you look at the context, if you make rash promises that you can't keep, people will no longer trust what you say. Your word, in other words, will no longer be your bond. And if you commit and then you back out with excuses and you do that perpetually, people will learn not to rely on you and not to commit to you. So what you say and what you do will end up being taken with a pinch of salt. You just won't be believed anymore. But you'll get a reputation that he or she is reliable as a chocolate teapot. Can't believe a word he or she says. The work of your hands is destroyed. The witness you were trying to bring has diminished. Do, do, do you really want that? You don't, do you? Neither do I. Do we want our friends and our family and our kids and the, and the people of God and God himself not to trust a word you say and that they almost expect you to let them down? How does that even reflect on God, who keeps his promises? Now perhaps we can see how serious broken promises can be. It ultimately sullies the name and the glory of the promise keeper, and therefore makes worship of him meaningless. You know, our expectations on ourselves are almost, almost always much harder than God himself because God rarely requires you and me to make promises to him. He's the promise maker. He's the promise keeper. So let's sum up as we close. So how to make the very most of God in our gatherings. Prepare yourself on the way for worship. Remember it's all about God, not you. Listen before you speak. Rely on God to help you, not yourself. If you promise, fulfill it. If not, fess up and you're forgiven. And then this last bit. Instead of the sacrifice of fools, make good, acceptable, meaningful sacrifices in worship together. The full sacrifice costs and bring consequences and no change. But the true worshipper who follows all the things that uh, Solomon instructs us to do, the true worshipper's sacrifice still costs, but brings blessing and the transforming touch of God. And as far as I can see, there's probably more. There are two sacrifices in the New Testament for the believer. That's not included, three actually, because 24-7 is a living sacrifice. But let me go with this. And first is the continual sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13, 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And it's not always just singing either. 
You see, you don't have to wait until your circumstances are favourable. You don't have to wait until you feel better. You don't have to have good circumstances. You don't have to be happy with grinning like a Cheshire cat every time you come to the Lord in praise. You don't have to have a smile on your face. You can still praise the Lord even when you're in agony and you just don't understand. Job's the perfect illustration. He loses everything, his kids, his health, his wealth. You know the story, Job 1.21. And his response is this, and it's registered a response of praise and worship. How? Why? Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and it was a blessing, and the Lord has taken away, and it's a nightmare. But may the name of the Lord be praised. Because he knows what he's doing. I don't. But he just still deserves all the glory and all the trust and all the hope. And James says, look at what God finally brought about for Job. Here's another sacrifice of praise. When you don't feel like singing and praising, speak to yourself and get in the zone. As our gospel friends say, our black gospel friends specifically say, get your praise on. And I think we should. And it's really just a paraphrase of Psalm 42.11, although David might turn in his grave, I don't know. Psalm 42.11. Why are you downcast, O my soul? He says to himself. Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, refocus. For I will yet praise him. Why? Because he's my saviour and my God. And the last thing, the sacrifice to make the very most of God in worship is this. The sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart. And that comes from verse 2, realizing who God is and who you are. Verse 2, God is in heaven, you're on the earth. Verse 7, much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. David, after being found out by the prophet Nathan, committing adultery, uh, frontline murder, he declares this, Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Isaiah 57, 15, a promise from the Lord himself. I live in the high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's what happens when you come with the sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart. Let me leave you with this last one from Isaiah. Another word direct from God's mouth. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Let's pray.
Lord God Almighty, we confess our failings in this area. We confess that so often we bring sacrifices of fools to you. We confess that we're so easily distracted. We confess that we're so taken up with ourselves and what's going on that we do not realize who we come to, that we should realize afresh that God is in heaven, we're on the earth, therefore stand in awe of God. We realize afresh that you revive those who are broken and contrite because they know who you are and therefore they know who they are. Forgive us for making promises before you and to you that we haven't kept. Help us instead to beseech your grace and help to live for you, but to rely on you, the promise keeper. You're the one who makes promises and never, ever once broke one. You're the one we must trust, not our own mouths, not our own declarations. Restore to us, Lord, your big picture of who you are. Help us to glimpse something of what it's like to be those angels in heaven who uh, are totally and utterly taken up with praise and just cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Forgive us in our 21st century thinking that we have somehow minimized you in that regard. May we exalt you and elevate you. May you increase as we decrease. To your glory and to your name. Amen.